Welcome back, friends, to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. This is Shlomo Buxbaum. I'm grateful that you are here. If you're a newcomer to the podcast, this is a project of the Lev Experience, and you can learn more at levx.org. You can learn more about our virtual online classes, our in-person classes, if you happen to be in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area, and uh, you could help support the podcast. So my guest today is Rebetzin Ruchi Koval. She is the co-founder and director of the Jewish Family Experience, a congregation and Sunday school in Cleveland, Ohio. She is a certified parenting coach, a motivational speaker, a musician, and author of two books, Conversations with God, and her brand new book, Soul Construction, Shape Your Character Using Eight Steps from the Timeless Jewish Practice of Musser. And in our podcast today, we're really going to delve into her story, her life story, and her book, and many of the themes behind her book. It's a really great conversation. She's also a trip leader for Momentum, inspiring hundreds of women on their journeys to Israel, and she is a columnist for the Cleveland Jewish News. I'm also privileged to welcome back to the podcast my favorite co-host, my wife, Devorah, and she is a close friend of uh, Rebetzin Ruchi, so that adds uh, so much flavor to the conversation, having these two amazing Rebetzins, my wife, Devorah, our special guest, Ruchi Koval, on the podcast, and uh, it's a really, really interesting conversation. There's a lot to take away, so I hope you enjoy. Once again, thank you so much. There's a lot of podcasts out there. I'm so happy that you are with us. Reach out to me. Uh, if you like the content that you're listening to, please subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast. If you're on Apple, rate the podcast. These things are so helpful, helping us get out there um, and uh, share our message with the world. Enjoy the podcast. Without further ado, my conversation with Rebetzin Ruchi Koval. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. This is very exciting. We have another rockin' Rebitson takeover on the Empowered Jewish Living <laughs> Podcast. Those episodes are always fan favorites. So we have over here my, Re- my rockin' Rebitson, yeah. Devorah Buxbaum. <laughs> Hi, everybody. And rockin' Rebitson, uh, Ruchi uh, Koval, who... We're going to um, hear a little bit about who she is, what she does. So I guess a good place to start for our listeners, lots of whom are big fans of yours, some of whom have no idea who you are. So maybe you can give us just a short bio, mainly what are you doing now professionally, all the things, because you do so much, all the things that you're doing professionally, but also if you can give us a little bit of a window into like, what's the mission behind it? What's pushing you? What's exciting you? What weaves together all the stuff? Okay. So hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, Bucksbaums. So uh, what I do professionally, well, my husband and I started a congregation about 15 years ago. 15 years ago, it was not a congregation. It was just a ragtag group of Jews getting together in people's living rooms. uh, And it has grown and morphed very organically into a congregation. We just bought our own building. So um, it's very exciting. I'm the uh, co-founder and associate director of the congregation. 
And um, I am also an author. This is my second book just released. Um, I write for my local Jewish paper. I have my own podcast. Um, what else do I do? I lead trips to Israel through Momentum. Um, and yeah, that's what I do. A lot of a lot of everything, but really it would all fit under the same umbrella, which is really Jewish education. And that's what really, that's, that's where I really get very passionate um, because I think that the Torah is the best product to ever hit the universe. And I know that's not <laughs> my own original opinion, um, but you know, even though I grew up very religiously affiliated and identified my whole entire life, it wasn't really until my adulthood that I got super excited and passionate about that which was in my own backyard all the time. And I had always been an observant Jew, but you know, as I was meeting more and more Jews through our congregation who had not grown up with that kind of education or access, it, it started to dawn on me for the first time that many people didn't know what they had, their own treasure in their own backyard. And as I started to teach people things that I had learned from my background and my education and my upbringing, people reflected back to me, oh my gosh, that's so cool. What? Judaism teaches that? I had no idea. And then I was in turn inspired by their excitement. And I was like, yeah, right. Jews are cool. Judaism is brilliant. Whoa. I never even realized how brilliant. And that's really what led to everything, the teaching, the writing, the podcasting. It's all the same thing. Yeah, that absolutely. Why do you think that is, by the way? I know that what, we also get that reaction all the time. People are like, you know, wow, like, how did we not know that? Or, you know, if that's true, how come our rabbis didn't teach to us? And it's always like a, a fine line that I'm always like, is this like putting the blame on, you know, it's on like, do, do we point fingers here? Or like, you know, where, where do you see the disconnect happen? Yeah. So, you know, finger pointing is never useful. Um, I like to try fun though sometimes. What? Never mind. Carry on. No, it, it is a lot of fun. And actually my default mode is to point fingers. I'm so good at it. Um, but what I've learned through the study of Musser <laughs> is not to do which that. Which we'll get to shortly. Uh, which we'll get to shortly. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that I never do it. It's just to say that when I do it, I realize that I'm totally barking up the wrong tree. Um, but if I had to sort of try to understand why has Judaism been so mismarketed, I would say that many of us were raised in the shadow of the Holocaust. Three out of my four grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Many of my teachers in Jewish day school growing up were Holocaust survivors. Um, a lot of Jews who did not go to day school or even synagogues were educated under the shadow of the Holocaust. You must marry Jewish because they tried to kill us. They hated us, therefore stay Jewish. By you the know, way, that when I proposed to Dvara, that's that's exactly how I said, I'm like, Dvara, will you marry me? They tried to kill our grandparents. <laughs> My gosh. Well, it looks like it worked out well for you. So yeah, it was a good tactic. <laughs> the most romantic. Exactly. Absolutely. But that's not one of your pickup lines. I mean. <laughs> um, you know, and and for a lot of Jews, Holocaust education was the front and center piece of marketing in Judaism. And I understand why, because we had to rebuild. And there was a desperation on the part of the earlier generation to reignite Judaism in a generation that didn't seem interested. I mean, even if you think about like that iconic movie, The Jazz Singer, right? That's the story of the Jewish people. And there was a fear and a desperation, we're gonna lose these Jews and let's scare them that the Holocaust happened. Now, looking back, that's not a good way to motivate the next generation. 
And, um, you know, even people growing up like I did in a Jewish day school, a lot of the messages didn't necessarily come from passion and excitement because this was a generation that was literally scarred and traumatized. And when you look back at what that generation did at the infrastructure of Judaism that they created, it's a raging success. If you look at all the schools and all the synagogues and all the JCCs and all the opportunities, you know, for Judaism, you know, far be it for me to judge that generation, but there was also to nobody, you know, to blame none of our ancestors, but there was a heaviness to it. And, and, and a lot of young Jews, you know, didn't want to go to synagogue or didn't want to be affiliated. So how did we convince them to be affiliated? Because you need to have a bar and a bat mitzvah. So a lot of the kids showed up and what did they learn to do? They learned how to read Hebrew. And by and large, they learned it from elderly Israelis who didn't necessarily understand kids and weren't necessarily on fire about Judaism, but they knew how to read Hebrew. And so that became like the most important aspect of, of Jewish education. You know, the Holocaust, they hated us. They tried to kill us, be Jewish, and also learn to read Hebrew. And eat. Uh, and eat, yes. Food food has always been very well marketed in yes. Judaism. So big A plus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but therefore, therefore, I feel like that generation did not have like, I would almost say the luxury of transmitting the joy and passion and buoyancy of Judaism because they were still just surviving and you know rebuilding now we do have the luxury we do have the luxury you know it, it, it's hard to um get people excited about it because there are so many distractions in our generation but we do have the luxury now to say okay we survived we thrived now let's get to the heart of what is Judaism really about? It's not just about surviving. It's about joy. It's about passion. It's about connection. It's about community. It's about family. It's about love. Yeah. Beautifully said. Wow. If I could add on to that, again, I, I agree 100%. It also seems like the world, well, I shouldn't say the world. It seems like our society America, Western society has also become much more secular. I think that every religion, I don't know, like I haven't taken a survey amongst other religions or, you know, I don't know how, you know, the mosque industry is doing, Uh, but I have gotten the sense that, you know, across the board, um, there definitely was a secularization within our society, less of an interest in spirituality. And that I think is also slowly trickling back in through whatever movements there are and that might be a good trend for us as well you know all boats rise with the the tides and i think that uh if america can become more spiritual and you know in all of their practices and mindfulness and meditation and all that stuff then i think that naturally jews will also gravitate more towards what's spiritual for them which hopefully will be you know torah and judaism because it is the best the the best product that there is well i think that's true but you know there's also this kabbalistic concept of which means that there's always going to be equal poles towards good and evil in this world because otherwise a person wouldn't be able to make meaningful choices and therefore at the same time that spirituality is kind of trending, so to speak, in our culture, but by the same token, um, things like faith and prayer, things that are, you know, more overtly Jewish in in in, in their expression, are sort of becoming more circum more more suspect. I think so. You know, for example, a generation ago, 
you know, being a supporter of Israel was a no-brainer for a Jewish person. And now it's not a no-brainer anymore. So I feel like, well, on the one hand, you know, spirituality is so accessible and it's so, it's a low-hanging fruit, but by the same token, there are certain aspects of our Judaism and certain aspects of Jewish pride that are becoming less uh, available and more elusive. So, you know, while some things have become easier and more available, other things are becoming more compl complicated, um, you know, uh, Jewish pride has become politicized and 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 it's 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 more complicated. So you've got that sort of push and pull that makes life right. hard and easy at the same time. Right. So meaning the menu, the menu for anyone now, for any young human being, young Jew, is complete secularity, secularism, whatever you might call that. Um, spirituality, but there's enough out there to say, okay, I can be spiritual without being Jewish or Judaism. So you're saying Judaism now really has two uh, enemies or supplements. Right? The choice is not just, you know, Judaism versus secularism, but it's Judaism versus other streams of spirituality, as well as um, just, you know, not being spiritual at right. all. Yeah. Right. And it's no secret that the representation of Jews in other faiths and spiritualities is disproportionately high. Yes. Talk about because that. Jews, Jews are searchers and seekers. And very often, you know, somebody else's faith will seem much cooler and much more, much less, you know, guilt ridden or pressurizing than your own. That goes back to the heaviness I talked about earlier. Um, we have seen in our congregation that the most spiritually inclined, fascinated members of our congregation who are obsessed with Judaism are by and large not Jewish. Yeah. Because they don't have that guilt. They don't have that heaviness. They don't have that pressure. They're just coming in as an outsider and they're like, oh, Judaism is kind of cool, you know? Mm -hmm. And the Jews are like, yeah, but I'm not really sure about this, not really sure about that. You know, the Jews are much more skeptical. Yeah. Hmm. So, Let's get into, let's talk about the book a little bit. Actually, before that, or as a segue to that, um, you know, you, you open the book, Soul Construction, you open it speaking about becoming a Rebbitzin. Yeah. And I'm not sure when, did, did, did the Rebbitzin mention in her introduction that she's a Rebbitzin? Did she say that word? I'm not sure whether you did. I did and not. I noticed, well, you introduced her as a rock and I, I, As a rock, I guess I did the work <laughs> for you. But I did, you know, in listening to other, um, other interviews that you've done, also, like, I, I've noticed how you kind of hem and haw sort of around that word Rebbitzin. And also, again, I'm like, you know, I love the book. I love the book. I, could, I couldn't help but notice that in your opening introduction, you kind of say like, I became a Rebbitzin because my husband had this epiphany that he wanted to become a rabbi and you weren't ready for it, you know? So, you know, there seemed, I, I, I sense some sort of distance. That being said, on the flip side, I'm just remembering, this is a very, very long-winded question, so just bear with me here. This is a question? It sounds like a story. I, some, I feel like a question is going to okay. come out of it. I'm not really sure <laughs> what following. that might be. I'm following. You're good. But the first time I actually, I think I might know Ruchi longer than you. My first exposure to you was at a conference, which was the AJOP, Association yes. for Jewish Outreach Programs, where, I mean, I this that. you walked in there there were not too many women there. This was a no. rabbi conference with rabbi speakers and rabbi attendees. 
and you were there on the program. And I sat there in your class and be like, wow, like, this is amazing. You know, this is a Thank Rebetzin you. and she's here in this, in, in, in this space. And I, I was, I was very moved. So, um, I, I can't imagine. So that's, you know, with, with so much success that you've had in this role as Rebetzin, to me, it's gotta be more than just like, you got into this because your husband was a rabbi. Was there a question right. at the end? I think yeah, there was. No, I, yeah. I, I hear, I hear the question. Um, you are correct in your perception that I am ambivalent about the title Rebetzin. I am. Um, it has a lot of remnants of Shtetli Rebetzins, um, for better or for worse, correctly or incorrectly. And I also feel like being a Rebetzin should be a choice. Like you shouldn't have to be a Rebetzin just because your husband is a rabbi. You should get to choose like how much or how little, or if you're going to play that role. So um, I was ambivalent about it for certain in the beginning, because that wasn't some, a role I had ever envisioned, envisioned for myself. You what know, did you the, envision for yourself? Oh, I was going to be like a music therapist or um, a publisher, a writer. I had all these different things that I was going to possibly do. Um, like when I was growing up, the Rebbitsons were like European. You know what I'm saying? Like I didn't really have any young, cool Rebbitsons in my life. That wasn't a, a, an icon that I ever saw. So you thought you were going to have know, to learn Yiddish when you became a Rebbitson. I did, and the or irony at least is that I did the Hungarian learn accent. <laughs> the you already know Yiddish. I did learn Yiddish because totally independent of being a Rebbitson. But when my husband and I got engaged, and my grandmother, who's a Holocaust survivor, learned that he knew Yiddish from his yeshiva experience from from rabbinical school they taught some things in Yiddish she said to him you must teach my granddaughter Yiddish and she told me exactly what to do she said every night at dinner for five minutes you're only allowed to speak in Yiddish and no we did. way we did and I understand I would say 90 percent of Yiddish today my my speaking is much more embarrassing than that but if I had to communicate with somebody I could wow that was before my Rebbitzin job, but, but I would say that it was the transition where I was sort of like dragging my feet. Like, just because you're a rabbi doesn't mean that I want to be a Rebbitzin. To me, that wasn't a job. It was an identity. And that wasn't how I identified. I want to be a professional. I want to be an academic. I want to be whatever I want to be. Like, I didn't want to be pigeonholed into this box. And that was important to me. And, and my husband, who's very wise, he, he understood that. And he totally left me alone however much or how little I wanted to do the Rebbitson thing you know that was totally up to me and then I, I did end up sort of you know moving into that role by choice and you know I don't call myself a Rebbitson for all the same reasons that I hemmed and hawed earlier so I you know in my introduction I said I'm the co-founder and associate director of our congregation um, I call myself a Jewish educator. I call myself a teacher, you know, a writer. Um, people do call me Rebbitson. The people in our congregation, they call me Rebbitson all the time. And I actually think it's adorable. Don't tell them I said that. <laughs> but here I am going on the record. I think it's really sweet because I think, you know, for them, it's an expression of admiration and affection and so and respect. And, and I, I value that not not for myself, but for the institution that we run for the Torah that I know. And that should be respected. You know, so 
I really appreciate actually when, when people call me that, but I don't like to call myself that. Um, but I, I did end up like very consciously stepping into the role and saying, you know what? I, I said to my husband, like, I want to be your equal partner in this and I want to do this together. And I want to take my talents and energies from other places and put them all under this umbrella. And, and so that's what I do now. Well, that was beautifully articulated. I wonder, did you ever have this Robinson complex? Um, I also never thought of myself as a Rebbitzin. And I also, when people would call me Rebbitzin, I would def, I actually, I don't, Ruchi, is that a thing that now more recently you feel comfortable with that and you think it's adorable? Did you always feel that way if people would call you no, Rebbitzin? No, no. When I was younger, I had total imposter syndrome. Yeah, like, that's what I would say for sure. Like, you like just I was like, I'm who a are you calling? Yeah, absolutely. Right. It just felt like very, very not me. Absolutely. In fact, when, when we, um, my husband's first rabbi job was in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. And this was a, a community that was, you know, in the suburbs of Chicago and all the kids called me Rebbitzin. You know, I was literally um, 24 years old and we lived there for two years and then we moved back to Cleveland. So I'm in Cleveland, I'm at the kosher grocery store and I'm waiting in line and somebody says Rebbitzin. And I turn around to see who's talking to me because for tw two years, everybody had been calling me Rebbitzin. And then I turn around and I see that my 70 year old high school principal, who was legitimately like a European Holocaust survivor, Rebitson, oh wow. turned around because they were talking to her, not me. Wow. And I'm, I'm and like 25 like... and I'm like, yes, you called me. I'm the Rebitson. What would you know? <laughs> and I, I felt so embarrassed. Like, and it really reinforced to me, like, who do you think you are to consider yourself a Rebitson? Oh my gosh, no, that's an no. amazing story. It is a crazy thing though. Like it really is a weird thing that, you know, a rabbi who studies and goes through smicha, goes through a training process and becomes a rabbi that just, you know, it's just an assumed thing that like the rabbi's wife is a rabbitin. Like how do we even gain that title? You know, it's such a bizarre thing. Isn't there a song right. about this? Isn't there a song? It's the rabbi's wife. Da -na 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 -na. No, 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 that's no, a no. new song called It's the Rebbe's Life. Oh, different song? Yeah, All right. different song. <laughs> in our house, we sing It's the Rebbe's Wife. But that's what I wrote in, in the introduction. I said that it's akin to being the first lady. Like, right. you right. get the title because of what your husband does. The difference is that there's one first lady in the whole world. Right. Where there as multiple rabbits, there are multiple rabbitsons running around town, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Was there a point, like if you can point to one point, an event or something that really made you like comfortable and say, okay, you know what, I could own this now. Like I have arrived, you know, was there such a moment? I, I think, I, I don't remember one particular moment, but I think that once we became like a very real congregation and we started having services every Shabbat morning and Oh, well, there was my husband at the front, at the pulpit, running the services. And there I was, you know, in the congregation praying. And then I would go and teach the Parsha class. And then that's when it started feeling legitimate for me. And that was only a couple of years ago. Yeah. I think for me, the congregation, sorry, the congregation only started a couple of years ago, Rahi. Well, no, the congregation, like I said, it evolved. It started as right. But officially it was only adults. a couple of years ago. And then, well, then eventually it became a Sunday school. And then eventually we were running Barabbat Mitzvahs and then we were running um, Shabbatones, but we didn't start having weekly Shabbat morning services until a couple of years ago. We were monthly and then we were every other week. And, you know, so we sort of grew inversely from how most congregations grow, but we added on programming as our congregation was ready for them. Yeah. Beautiful. I was going to say that I think for me, I think within a year, I had to do both a wedding and my first wedding and my first funeral. 
Oh. And none of them were simple. The funeral was somebody who tragically died young. And it was a lot of just, you know, dealing with the family. Uh, so it was somewhat of a complicated, it wasn't complicated, but it, again, it was more than just, you know, somebody's parent who was in their 90s, which is, you know, also, uh, you know, a thing, but this was, there was more to it. Um, it was very, very sudden. And within that same year, I also did a wedding, but the wedding also came along with a conversion beforehand. So each one of those were were complex. I think after I crossed that bridge, it was like, wow, I just did my first wedding, my first funeral, but it was also a thing. I think that's when I said, you know what? Like, maybe this is, you know, maybe I am legit. I think I still have imposter syndrome. We, I think we all do with everything. Uh, but I think that might have been sort of that moment for me. Yeah, your exactly. initiation. Exactly. Um, uh, so let's get a little bit more into the book. So... The book is called Soul Construction, Shape Your Character Using Eight Steps from the Timeless Jewish Practice of Musser. That's spelled M-U-S-S-A-R. Can you share with the listeners, what is Musser? And that question is not only, I think, for those who might not be familiar with the word at all, even for me, I think my understanding growing up in yeshiva of what Musser was sort of changed when I started seeing like the works of Alan Marinus and the Musser Institute and, and sort of, mm-hmm. um, which is probably more authentic, but what is Musser? What is it about? Uh, and why were you so pulled to write a book about it? Okay. So Musser is a path towards spirituality via working on one's character specifically on the focus of specific character traits, such as patience, humility, kindness, generosity, things like that. And the founder of the Musser movement, which started a couple hundred years ago, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, um, he believed that this should actually be one's primary path towards spirituality, that working on one's character trait should be the most important Um, way for a person to become more spiritual and the spiritual connection there is that the Torah teaches that a a Jew is supposed to try to emulate God and that just as God exhibits fine character traits refined character traits so should a human being and so just as God is patient we should be patient just as God feeds the hungry we should feed the hungry Etc. So that's how it becomes a path towards spirituality is becoming more godlike and spreading more godliness in the world. And that is actually one of the major reasons we're here on this planet. Now, why did I write a book about Musser? Well, we have to back up and say, why did I even start teaching Musser? Because I've been teaching Musser for many years. So it actually started in our Sunday school. We had a parent program. We have a parent program attached to our Sunday school. And my husband and I were doing a three-part series on marriage. And in his one of his talks about marriage, he was talking about this concept of Musser, that a person who wants to be in a positive, healthy relationship has to constantly be working on their character. And he mentioned this word Musser, that this is, you know, an important study in Judaism to focus on our character traits and to become more self-aware and to develop one's character traits and to actively have this as a practice. After the, cl- after the class, a woman came over to me, one of the moms, and she said, Ruchi, what is this thing called Musser? I, I literally remember it like it was yesterday. What is this thing called Musser? And is it something that we should be studying? Mm. And her friend was standing right next to her and she said, yeah, me too. I want to do that too. 
And so I start, I said, you know what? It, it actually is. It's very important. And when she said that, I was thinking to myself, you know, this is such an important thing to teach, particularly to people who didn't grow up with a strong attachment to their Judaism, because even though I just got finished explaining that there's this strong spiritual component and that we're supposed to try to imitate God, but even for people who let's say are totally don't even relate to that concept or don't even know if they believe in God or what they believe about God or have never even talked about God in polite company. But I thought to myself, as she came over to me after this class, that the concept of working on one's character and becoming a more ethical, refined person, which in turn translates into better relationships, that's something that anybody could really get there, get around. <laughs> and therefore, it's an easy entry point, so to speak, into this whole idea of Jewish education in the first place. Because who doesn't want to have a richer life? Who doesn't want to have deeper relationships? Who doesn't want to become a better person? I mean, don't answer that question if you know people who don't. But <laughs> Actually, <laughs> here's my list. <laughs> <laughs> but many people would self-report desiring to, you know, have better experiences in these areas. And therefore, it's a way to help Jews get connected to their Judaism in a way that doesn't trip up against all the theological issues about God and Shabbat and you know all the things that people feel ambivalent or uncomfortable or you affiliate this, I affiliate that. Here's something that transcends affiliation, that transcends beliefs, that transcends theology, frankly, that transcends Judaism. This is a human thing. You know, and, and Alan Morinus writes about that in his books as well. Like, why wouldn't everybody want Musser? So as this woman was asking me, I was thinking to myself, like, this is an amazing, easy entry point for people. And that's how, like, the Cleveland Musser movement started. I would say, I don't know, maybe 12, 13, 14 years ago. I don't even remember. So as I was, you know, teaching these classes and people were telling me, Ruchi, Musser has changed my life you know, it started to occur to me. And then people would say, is this in a book somewhere? I, you know, and I did find Alan Marinus's books, which are very accessible muster books, but I felt like I wanted to write down my own muster things that I had taught and learned over the years and things that my women were saying about what they had experienced through the study of muster and sort of like this excitement about how muster is something, again, like it's been in our own backyard all along but it is transformative. And for people who have perhaps even been exposed to Musser, as you said, like growing up in yeshiva, but to then read about how Jews who have never, never studied it are finding it revolutionary, well, maybe I should be re-examining it and see if it could be revolutionary for me. Yeah, I wonder, because you, you mentioned that how it transcends, uh, it even transcends Judaism. And actually your book does a beautiful, beautiful, incredible job of weaving together um, classic Jewish Musser texts. You mentioned Path of the Just a lot, and certainly Perkei yeah. Avos, and um, um, what's the other one that I'm uh, thinking of? The Ways of Tzaddikim. Thank you, yes, Orchus Tzaddikim, The Ways of Tzaddikim. But you're also quoting William Glasser and Susan Cain, and you know, and uh, so is that, is all of that Musser? Would you say that Musser, when, when you're quoting more of those secular works, those psychology works, you know, what is, is there, does it sort of all fall into one umbrella? How would you like define that for someone who's trying to understand what Musser is, but sees that you're, you're kind of quote, you're, you're pulling from those two worlds? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because the publisher of my book which is called Life Codex, um, 
they're a Jewish couple, Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin, who live in Baltimore. Um, and they have a very strong alliance with the religious Christian community, and they publish religious content for the Christian community. And so our alliance is perhaps an unexpected one, but one of the things that came up in my writing is, you know, I said, listen, I, I am interested in putting spiritual content out there. For you, it's, you know, marketed for the Christians. For me, it's marketed for the Jews, but overall it's the same content. But there were a few places throughout the writing of the book where there was actually a difference, and this was one of them. Because Susan, my publisher, said to me, you know, Christians don't need all of that outside corroboration from like the psychologists and the TED Talks. They want Bible. Wow. <laughs> wow. And I said to her, well, secular Jews need outside corroboration from Isn't the psychologists and the wow. TED Talks. Yeah. And that's why I weave it in, because that's how I teach. Because if I'm teaching a secular Jew and they'll hear something in Judaism and then they'll hear that some award-winning psychologist said the same thing, they'll say, oh, cool, Judaism must be true because psychologist X even said so, right? Now, that's not what I believe. I believe, isn't it cool that modern psychology is only now waking up to truth X when Judaism has been saying it for thousands of years? But I do know that it's impressive to people to hear that these ancient Musser concepts are now being borne out and corroborated by modern professionals and by modern psychology. And, and therefore it gives extra meat and potatoes to these ancient concepts, which many Jews are not taking Torah at face value. They're, they're critical thinkers, they're skeptical, they're cynical, and they wanna know like, why should I believe this? You know, and so, so to me, it's all Musser, you know, it's all Musser. And this is what um, the Talmud says that if, you know, there's, there's much wisdom among the nations and that we should accept the wisdom that exists among the, the nations. The question is filtering out what's wisdom and what's not wisdom. But when we find wisdom among the nations that jives with and can be integrated with Torah sources, I personally find that to be powerful teaching tools for secular Jews who are more in that world of, you know, whether it's pop culture or modern psychology or the medical world science, that's something that they're used to trusting and relying upon as opposed to just taking Torah at face value. So it, it has been an integration and that was definitely a conversation with my publisher, which was very a very interesting uh, eye-opening experience for me. It is really cool, and Dvara, you do that as well also a lot in your classes, and, and the truth is that really, it was Dvara that turned me on at all to the self. I think up until Dvara introduced me to some of the names within that world, I think for the most part to me, like all growth, all growth came from Torah, like there was nothing outside of that, and then, and then I think Dvara started getting into it and shared that with me, and then I'm like, wow, like some of this stuff really so beautifully compliments and brings out and, and, and gives it maybe a language yeah. that's um, a very unique language. Yeah, when it jives, it's really amazing. And I think also just having the context of like, you know, just from the Musser context of us, you know, being souls that we're trying to fully develop into their fullness and that we're also like when we can live that best, you know, best version of ourselves in, um, not not just fulfilling you know what i'm supposed to be and my purpose but also just in terms of like the emulation of hashem and like that way that we're kind of putting it out to the universe it's really it's really powerful it's really powerful yeah it is really powerful and i think it's also a little eye-opening for um 
Jews of all stripes to see that like, you know, I might be a religiously observant woman. I'm Shomer Shabbos, I'm Orthodox, whatever you want to call me, but that I'm not divorced from modern culture. You know, my husband will bring in sports analogies and I, I you know, and I'm not saying that anybody should pretend to be anything they're not. I happen to love TED Talks. I happen to love psychology. I happen to love to read. So for me, it's a very honest and natural integration, right? And, and I think that's part of it too. Every person has to be authentic with who they are. I'm not saying that a person should, you know, pretend to be an expert on something so that people will take their word for it in Judaism. But, but if, if it's an honest and true integration, which I believe we are supposed to do in this world, we're supposed to take everything we learn and everything we see and put it together in our quest to become our best selves. So then when you transmit that from a place of authenticity and passion and excitement, you know, other people can't help but catch your authenticity and passion and excitement. Yes. You chose eight steps. So you chose eight traits and I'll, I'll rattle them off quickly uh, based on how they're put on the cover. Acceptance, generosity, forgiveness, silence, renewal, happiness, speech, favorable judgment. Um, was it hard narrowing down? There's so many different traits that you could have picked and yet you chose these eight. And I guess it would be a lot for you to have to go through each one and say, you know, how you chose each individual one. But was there something uh, something that was sort of the litmus test as to whether you wanted to include this as one of your traits in the book? Yeah, so the book took me four years to write. Um, one of the reasons for that is that I have seven kids and a day job, thank God. <laughs> um, another reason is that the book went through so many identity crises before it became a muster book, <laughs> which is too, too long to really get into, but I'll just give you a little snippet. The first iteration of the book was that I, I would go and travel around and teach these lectures, you know, in different cities and, and, and I would prepare most of my lectures I prepared originally for, for JFX for our congregation on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur I give like annual sort of keynote speaks speeches and that's like, then I add it to my list of speeches. And most of them are infused with muster because that's just what I'm excited and passionate about. So. What I, the book originally was, was I took my most requested speeches, my most requested lectures, wrote them out, which I already had outlines for, and, and then I submitted it for publication. So it was more like an anthology of my lectures. Hmm. And then my publisher said, anthologies of essays don't sell. Yeah. You need to tell us a story. So then it went through, I thought maybe I would make it a story about my grandmother who really embodies so many of the lessons in the book. And then I couldn't come up with enough stories about my grandmother. Like, you just need to have coffee with her. I can't explain her. Okay. <laughs> so we took my grandmother. The end. What? <laughs> That's a whole book right there. Go have coffee with grandmother. <laughs> the end. So I, so I took my grandmother out of the book. It just wasn't working in print. Okay. So then I decided to make it into a Musser book. So then not all of my lectures really fit in when I decided I was going to make them character traits. So I had to take out even some of my most favorite chapters. I had to, I had a whole chapter about free will that is based on the writings of Rabbi Dessler, whom some of you have heard of. I loved it. I had to take it out. It just didn't fit in with my character traits. And Where can I we find take... that chapter, Rochi? Oh, bonus content. You'll exactly. Have to... <laughs> exactly. I want that chapter. <laughs> you know, it'll go under the, you know, outtakes. Yeah. But uh, 
you know, and then once I had to take out certain chapters, then I had to add in certain chapters. And then I actually took a critical look at my list of character traits. And I was like, well, why did these character traits survive just because they happen to have been keynote lectures at one mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. So then I decided to add in like the, the last two traits to be added were actually two of my favorite, which is our renewal and happiness. The last two chapters in the book, mm-hmm. which are things I'm so passionate about, but they just didn't make the cut originally because they just weren't speeches you know what I mean mm-hmm. right. so the whole thing sort of developed kind of organically and then I had to take a whole critical look at it and sort of almost start over again um I want to say if I can give a little bit of commentary what I what I found in the book and it's interesting that you mentioned that you put in renewal and happiness afterwards when I saw originally that it said eight steps so I was thinking along the lines of Path of the Just, who goes through mm. 10 different character traits, and they're all very different. They do build, you know, he says it's a ladder, and, and they do build upon each other. Alan Morinis also goes trait by trait, but they're, they're, um, each one is is a world unto itself. Yeah. Um, and, and many other Musser books that, that do that, and I expected that from the book as well, that they would be different. Yet, I found, as I was reading it, that really the first Six minus eight minus two six. The first six chapters actually did seem very coherent. It did seem like um, like they worked together, and that they you were building a theme within those first six. And you know, you you call the book or the tagline "Shape Your Character Using Eight Steps from the Timeless Jewish Practice of Musser." I think you could have also used the tagline "How to Deal with." the difficult people in your life or how to deal with, you know, your, your, all the struggles of your family and friends and loved ones using these eight steps, because that did seem to be a very, very central theme throughout the first six that you are, I mean, you're, you're, you're sharing a lot of, of both your own personal experiences, but also the experiences of your, um, of students. Your, your students uh, about how to deal with the, the the difficult people, especially those that are closest, uh, you know, to them, their their loved ones. So, I, as I'm reading it, I was wondering how much your your students' experiences, your own personal experiences, were behind that, and why you specifically sort of geared the traits towards dealing with the difficult people in your life. Whereas, let's say, you know, I could see in another book, you, someone might have chosen more spiritual traits, you know, etc. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I appreciate your careful read of my book. I'm quite honored. Thank you. <laughs> I mean it. Um, so the answer to that is, again, I teach Musser the way I experience Musser. And I experienced Musser through the lens of how Musser has, I wouldn't even say helped me, like that's not even a strong enough word, has made it even remotely possible for me to navigate the difficulties of my life. Um, and I, I have, I'm just gonna give myself a pat on the back. I have dealt with many difficult situations in my life in terms of personal relationships. Um, and teaching Musser has been an absolute lifeline for me. So that comes out in my teachings because it can't not because I'm, you know, I view myself as sort of a, a, a prism and I use that analogy in, in my book and my acknowledgements where I thank God for the ability to learn and teach Torah and that I just pray that I'm a worthy refractor. So the light I, I pray comes through me and since it comes through me, it's being reflected by me and my experiences. 
when I was a younger, newer teacher, I was careful to separate my personal struggles from my teaching of Torah, mm -hmm. um, because I, I almost felt like I didn't want to taint the perfect Torah with the imperfect me. Wow. But as I became a more experienced and more confident teacher, I recognized that sharing how a perfect Torah has helped imperfect me will actually be the thing that helps all the other imperfect people in this world who are listening be able to even remotely relate to a perfect Torah. Because I am an imperfect person and the Torah has helped me to be a better imperfect person. So the reason I heavily focus on those things, it, it wasn't even a decision to do so. It was simply the only natural way I know to reflect the wisdom that I have access to and how, how it's impacted me and, and made it possible for me to, to do better than I would have done otherwise. That's awesome. Mm, beautiful. So powerful. So when you started 15 years ago, when you started teaching Musar, it started just, it was more, it was, a, it was organic the way that it started with that conversation that you mentioned with your friend. So did you find that like, just as you were learning the things they were kind of applying to your life? Or did you suddenly like have a certain circumstance like months later and you're like, oh, right, like this is when I pull out this Musar tool. Like, how did you suddenly see everything just like, you know, meshing so beautifully to help the imperfect you who's pretty close to perfect. So, well, thank you. <laughs> it wasn't sudden at all. Um, and, and genuine growth never is, you know, because even if you have a massive epiphany in your life, it's going to take a long time for that epiphany to actually settle in and become a true authentic part of you. Um, so I would say it was something that really happened very gradually over time. Mm -hmm. The very first Musser book that I taught, which is ironic when I think about it now, because it's an ancient text. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that now I would have picked an ancient text as my first book. Usually I like to pick more contemporary texts as my first book because people find it easier to connect to. Um, but it was The Ways of the Righteous that goes through 28 character traits. And it's, it's a Hebrew book. It's got an English translation, but even the English translation is probably like 70 years old. Yeah. So as I was teaching it, I was interpreting, translating. Um, and, and, and the way I'm wired is I can't not connect. So as I'm teaching it, like my synapses are firing and I, you know, I had never formally learned that book. I had mm -hmm. certainly never formally taught it. So it was a learning experience for me as much as anybody else. And as I was preparing my text, I, I wish I had my text here to show you on this Zoom because I have a thousand um, uh, notes in my margin about how I was going to connect this to my life and how I was going to connect that in my life and what it reminded me of. And, you know, and in fact, one time my husband borrowed my text and I thought it was lost and I was literally freaking out. I was like, where's my book? Where's my book? Because it's not just about ordering another book. Like my notes from years are in the like diary. Almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, even now I look back because I'm teaching the book a second time around to that same group that I first started with. We're going wow. back to the book after learning many different texts together. And I look at some of my notes. I don't even know what the heck I was talking about. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't even know what half those notes mean. But the texts mean different things to me now because I'm a different person now and I have different connections now and different experiences now, mm -hmm. which is very cool and, and very interesting. So the answer to your question is it really happened very gradually and very organically. And mm -hmm. this is what people report from studying Musser is that almost imperceptibly over time, you start to notice that you're different and that, and that the Torah has sort of begun to mold you and shape you. That's the tagline, you know, shape your character. It, it's sort of like a, like a, you know, 
like a, a sand dune and the wind blows and the wind blows and you know you need one of those time lapse videos to actually see how it's becoming transformed that that's what happens to us the winds of torah blow on us and eventually we're different and i i've had friends who study mustard tell me this all the time like I, I can't tell you when it happened but over the past year i'm a different person i react to the same stimuli in a new way i get triggered but i'm different mm -hmm. And that's, that's really how it was for me as well as a, as a student of Musser. Wow. How, how did you choose, you know, cause you mentioned before how at some point teaching Musser, you felt that you do need to sort of become vulnerable and, and reveal the imperfections that are in your life and the struggles that are in your life. And I know even just, again, as a, as a public uh, figure, I've never been on a momentum trip with you, but I've, I, you know, you're, you're a blogger and you speak all over and you have publicly shared a lot of the struggles that you've had in the past that, you know, even just on, on podcasts that go out to, to, to the world. When you were writing the book, was that difficult for you to sort of assess how much of your own personal life and personal struggles you want to share in print in the book? How did you sort of gauge that? Yeah, so it's interesting that you say that. Um, I actually am less vulnerable in the book than I really am in real life because I think that when you put something in print that's gonna be actually printed, it's a lot scarier and a lot more consequential as opposed to something that you say in a private audience, you know, or even a podcast that goes out. But, you know, these things are sort of like, flash in the pan in terms of content online, people read it, they forget it, you know, it gets buried in the blogosphere. Not that one shouldn't be careful about one, what one puts out there, but I think that putting something in print is different. Um, it has a higher level of accountability. Um, and so um, I am still, I, I don't know that I would use the word vulnerable, but I am honest in the book about my own struggles with some of the character traits but I don't really, vaguely in one or two places, but for the most part, I don't really go into my personal challenges in the book um, because they impact other people in my life and I didn't feel like it was the place to do so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If there was one part of the book or one trait in the book that you're teaching about, and I don't only mean a trait as in one of the chapters, but even within the chapters where you offer, you know, different practices, one certainly that comes to mind is where you speak about radical acceptance. Um, but if you would sort of point to one section of the book that you would say, like, in your own personal life, in your own personal struggles, like that was a major game changer, maybe, maybe you'll say the whole book. Um, like, what, which section of the book would that be? Where would we really find the, the, the Ruchi Koval story kind of, you know, hidden in there? Um, so the two that jump out at me are definitely acceptance. Acceptance is a chapter that has definitely arisen from my own personal experience. Um, and that's, that's to a large degree, the story of my life and perhaps the most difficult, most or lesson I'm supposed to learn in this lifetime. Related to that is the trait of silence because, um, I'm a very extroverted person. I'm very comfortable speaking in groups. Um, I'm very comfortable speaking, period. And so teaching myself to not say something, to not react, um, to just accept things, it's related to acceptance, right? I don't have to chime in. I don't have to weigh in. I can just let things be. 
Um, that is a very difficult character trait for me. And I mentioned that in the book. And so um, would I call it a game changer? Acceptance, I would definitely call a game changer in terms of shaping my character, moving me further away from my default mode and closer to a better version of me. Um, but silence also is something that really did not come naturally to me. In fact, I remember as a teenager hearing this concept that you're supposed to think before you speak and having no idea how people did it on a regular basis. Like something would pop out of my mouth and I'd be like, whoops, shouldn't have said that. And then I was <laughs> like, when am I gonna learn how to have that thought before I say it? You know, so now here I am an adult and, and thank God I've learned how to do it. To me, but it's when my many... wife kicks me under the table. And then I'm like, when am I going to feel that kick before I say it? <laughs> well, I don't have a wife. That's the problem. Right, exactly. <laughs> so um, I still, I still, although I know I've come a long, long way, I still struggle with, you know, saying things and then later being like, why did you have to say that? You know, but the mistakes have gotten less severe and I've, I've, I've traveled in my journey and that's, that's the important thing. But I would honestly say that the biggest game changer is not one of the character traits, but it's one of the most overriding character traits of Musser in general. And in fact, most classic Musser texts, which deal with, you know, different character, like a list of different character traits, start with some version of this. And it is self-awareness. You know, um, the ways of the righteous starts with character trait of arrogance. You know, just kind of like recognizing when you're taking up too much space in the world. And um, the path of the just starts with also Zihirutz, which, you know, is called watchfulness. But I, I would translate it also as self-awareness. Being aware, being conscious of who you are in this world and who you aren't. And without self-awareness, self-awareness is, and I think that's why mo most Musser texts start with that, because self-awareness is the umbrella that's going to that's gonna precede all, uh, all self-work, really. Um, and and I, I mentioned that in my book at some point, I don't remember which chapter, but the, the thing with, oh, I, in, in the book, on, in the chapter on uh, speech on criticism, dealing with criticism, is that without self-awareness, you really can't even get to first base. And sometimes that self-awareness is going to come from outside of us, from feedback from the outside world. And that's, that's often uncomfortable and disturbing. But a student of Musser will say to themselves, that's uncomfortable and disturbing, but that's still good information for me. And what do I need? How do I need to use this information to help me grow? So self-awareness is really the you know, umbrella that covers everything. Yeah. And uh, maybe if we can just go back, because you spoke a little bit about silence, you spoke a little bit about um, self-awareness, but um, we mentioned radical acceptance. Maybe you can just spend another minute. I think that we would all gain very much. Just what is that concept, radi like radical acceptance? You know, that yeah. it sounds like a radical idea. What is it? Um, what does it look like? So radical acceptance is a concept from psychology that's used to accept oneself. It's, it's used in dialectical behavioral therapy, um, but I've sort of adopted the phrase to refer, not, not that a person shouldn't radically accept themselves, they should, um, but I've sort of adopted it to use in radically accepting others in our lives. Um, and this is a very, very big theme of mine. Again, not, not something that comes naturally to me. Um, I'm a fixer, uh, I'm a critical thinker. I have very high standards of myself and others. I have high expectations of myself and others. And therefore, uh, I, I, my default mode is to fix. Um, I'm very good at noticing what's not working. 
um, frankly, I'm good at fixing it too. And so it's been a very long learning opportunity <laughs> to learn that I need to radically accept the other people in my life for who they are um, and seriously resist the urge to fix and change them unless they want to change and they're asking me for help in changing, you know, that's different. Even so, <clears throat> I have to scale back my enthusiasm for that process. Um, the concept that, uh, and these are spiritual concepts, that other people are in my life for a reason, that they're there to teach me things, um, that I need to, you know, just as God contracts himself to make space for us to make mistakes, so too we need to contract ourselves to give other people the space to be themselves. Um, and the desire to be controlling of other people, uh, not for everybody, but for many people, can be overwhelming. And, and again, back to self-awareness, many people don't even realize that they're doing this and that everybody doesn't have to be me. And everybody doesn't, you know, I, I used to very much think about the world in terms of right and wrong. Like just to give you an example, I happen to be a very punctual person. So to my mind, punctuality is right and lateness is wrong. You know, it, it didn't mean I was rude to people, but it did mean that there was quite a bit of judgment in my head, you know, and then God in his infinite humor married me to a guy who is not as punctual as I am. And one of the things that very much attracted me to him was how chill he was when it came to these things. And then it was the very same thing that drove me crazy sometimes. And I used to think about it like, oh, well, I'm right and he's wrong, but I'm gonna love him anyway. When I got a little older and a little wiser, I realized, well, it's not that I'm right and he's wrong. Maybe there's just different ways of approaching the world. You know, there's the type A way and there's the type B way. Maybe one way isn't more right than others. And then when I got a little older and a little wiser, I realized that there are so many positive aspects to not being so hung up on all the rule following and on being right all the time and on looking at your watch every five minutes. There are so many positive qualities to being relaxed and chill and forgiving. And no, it's no big deal. We have, we have this joke in my house, if our guests for Shabbat ever walk in late, the first thing my husband says to them is perfect timing. <laughs> That's like, that's like code for, you know, you're a half hour late. Um, yeah, I know that the move. Funny thing, yeah. The funny thing is he really means it. Yeah. He really means it. Right. The moment that you walked in is the perfect moment that you were meant to walk in. And As you're cleaning up, you know, from the first course, like, yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, oh, well, maybe he's right and I'm wrong. And I've just had so many different iterations of how I think about this. You know, and, and this business of acceptance is one that's constantly evolving, you know, depending on the relationship, depending on who I am. But one big piece of it is to try to not look at the world with such black and white judgment mm -hmm. and to accept that people are who they are, that I cannot control them, that I am not God. And that the more I try to do so, the more frustrated I'll be. And frankly, the less loved people will feel and the less comfortable they'll feel in my presence. So I use the present tense. It's something that I'm still learning, mm. um, but it's definitely been a lifelong epiphany for me. Yeah. 
I would say, Zvara, as, as, as a mother of uh, six children, you probably also have some experience with uh, self, with radical acceptance as well. No, Absolutely. can you speak to that? Can I speak to that? Yeah, can we speak to that? Like just you know, in the context of our own, you know, six kids, and they're all different. I mean, some are very little, but yes. just you know. I mean, I, it's not. It's not even just the children. It's. I mean, it is our children, and it's. It's everybody. It's everybody that you meet. It's. A, it's a constant when it's on your radar. It's every interaction with every person, and when you yeah. look at them, it was, I mean, I, we had an, we had a, a, a situation this summer where you're we on a flight, and like the steward, the the flight attendant was just oi. Oh yeah, yeah. But I just, I really did. I said to my husband after afterwards, like radical acceptance. Like I just felt bad for her by the time the flight was over, and she was so horrible to us. But like when you come in with a different perspective, it's just it's it's just helpful in every single encounter. Yeah. So these these are are really really powerful tools. That being said, is, do you have a some sort of practice, and maybe it's not with Musar at all, but some sort of daily practice where you sort of you know take all these things that you're teaching, take all these things that you're learning, and actually turn it from just an idea to application, like how do you make that uh, transition? So I do have a daily gratitude practice. I don't know if this is where you were going with this, but I do have a daily gratitude practice. So there's, um, there's a prayer called Nishmas. It's a gratitude prayer in Judaism. So some people say it once a week on Shabbos. Some people say it every day. Different people have different ways that they use it. Um, but I'm, um, I'm on a Zoom every every morning, not every morning that I can. Um, and there's about a hundred women who come together from all over the world and they say this gratitude prayer together. Wow. Um, and afterwards we say several other gratitude prayers. And what I do in this gratitude um, practice is I very, very, very much focus on the people in my life and, and my gratitude for them and my acceptance for them um, and all the things that, I, that are working well um, and my gratitude to God for all the things he's given me. Um, and I find that, you know, and I touch on gratitude in my chapter on happiness, um, you know, drawing the parallel between being a grateful person and being a happy person. But I really find that that gratitude practice, um, no matter what else I'm going to do that day, it very much centers me in terms of, first of all, starting off the day with a God consciousness, um, which really puts the context around everything that's going to happen that day. Um, and second of all, you know, as you correctly intuited, so many of my chapters relate to human relationships. And when you start out your day with gratitude for your human relationships, for the people who are closest to you in your life, and, and perhaps the people you struggle with, um, it really reminds you that, you know, there is, it's not just about my struggles there are so many wonderful things in these relationships that are working so well and that I'm so appreciative for. So instead of defining the relationship by the struggle, which is sort of like the easy way to go, you know, it just reminds you of how much beauty there is in your life and how much is working in your life. And it gives you a lot of fuel for the day um, to put any of these things into practice because it comes from a place of joy and it really starts off my day right. That is powerful. That is powerful. I've, I've been trying to do that. I'm not great at that, but I, Zvora I, has spoken a lot also about the power of a morning gratitude practice, and I'm also trying to do it as well. And it really is. It, it, it does open up a lot of doors to really put, I think, everything in perspective and be the backdrop of, um, of your day. It's kind of amazing you do with a, another hundred women. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, I've, I've tried to do gratitude practices solo. 
Um, and I have found that I'm just not disciplined enough to do so. And the reason why this works is because it happens every single day at eight o'clock in the morning, come what may. So either I'm on the Zoom or I'm not on the Zoom, but it's happening. You know, and what I found is that if I can't get on the Zoom, I just say it to myself because I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss feel the connected to them, sort of. Even though are you just not... chanting the words together? Yeah, we all say it together. Wow, wow. Um, so for amazing. me, the fact that it's organized and that it's in a it's it's in a community of people, and even though we're strangers, we don't know each other, but it's a community of Jewish women from all over the world, and there's a very powerful connection there. Um, and also the fact that it just happens every day at eight o'clock. So it's got that, you know, it, it's, it's scheduled. I'm not, I know I'm not doing anything else at eight o'clock in the morning, unless something unexpected comes up. That's all I'm doing at eight o'clock in the morning. Whereas if I would do a practice solo, I would be like, well, I just got to do this do and later, I just got to right? do that and forget about it. So just to wrap this up, because I think we're, we're really out of time and there was so much wisdom over here in our time together and so much wisdom in your book. But if you would, Kind of, just to end, if you would have to deliver sort of this message to the universe, to humanity, that really kind of like a takeaway message from what we spoke about from your book, um, you know, what, what would be your, your advice, your nugget of wisdom to the world that you would plaster on every billboard and download in every human being's brain that you would inject along with everyone's COVID vaccine? What would that takeaway message be? Okay, so if I wasn't worried about sounding evangelical, what would I say? <laughs> Here's what I would say. I would say information is everywhere, but wisdom is rare. And our Torah, okay, this book, this book right here, that is the birthright of every single Jew. That book, by the way, is the Torah, not soul construction, just for the people that only have book, the audio, the not book, the video. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> is to say that it's packed with wisdom is literally the understatement of the century. And I, as a Jewish educator, as a rabbitson, if you will, only know a fraction of the tip of the iceberg of the wisdom that exists in that Torah. It is so beyond packed with wisdom. And I just want to like shout from the rooftops, like Jewish people, do you know what you have? It's yours, it's your treasure chest. It's your birthright, it's your inheritance, it's your heirloom, go to your attic, dust it off, open the box and just look in it because it is so beyond brilliant. And it has so much information for you in your contemporary life in the year 2021. It, it has so much, and I, I just feel like this is the message I want to give the world, is open the book and drink the wisdom. Love it. I feel like I want to go learn Torah now. Let's go. Let's go. Amazing. <laughs> Rebetzin Ruchi Koval, thank you so much. Rebetzin Dvorah, thank, thank you, you so Ruchi, much. Thank you, Ruchi, so much for your also, time and wisdom. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. This was awesome. Such a treat. May you have great success. How do people buy your book if they want the book? Okay, so they should go on Amazon. Uh, Soul Construction, Ruchi Koval, it's available in paperback and Kindle. And soon to be an audiobook read by me. Ooh. Uh, that's, that's in the plans. But for now, it's only available on Amazon and um, rabbidaniellappin.com. That's my publisher's website. Um, I have a lot of marketing ideas, so I'm hoping to get it into bookstores, libraries, hoping to get it to Israel. I'm, I'm working on lots of ideas. We love it. May Hashem grant you great success in all of your holy work and spreading the book and your message to the masses. Amen. Thank you.
Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.